last uh, Saturday night, uh, Lung Pa gave um, a Dhamma talk, and one of the turns of phrase that uh, he came up with uh, that I've been reflecting on quite a bit uh, the past few days um, is very uh, succinct and you know, uh, clear uh, description of a lot of what he was uh, discussing, bringing up Saturday night for, for the evening reflection. And um, it was a, a phrase that uh, something like this, I hope I don't uh, do it injustice, but uh, that um, he was talking a lot about um, uh, practice and method uh, and the fact that we don't tend to be such a, a method-oriented kind of um, practice. We, that's not taught so much here in, these, in, in our uh, Ajahn Chah communities. And what he was talking about was to, that what, what we needed to have was an ongoing conversation between the practice and the heart. And that's a turn of phrase that I thought was uh, quite wonderful and have been thinking about that conversation that we should all be having frequently uh, between our practice, what we call our practice, um, uh, and the heart, the effect that it has uh, inside, deep inside of us. Because uh, it's often the case uh, in some uh, teaching traditions, some practices, some practice communities, that a lot of emphasis is placed on method. And, um, you know, in, in some cases, many cases, sometimes it's good to put, put attention on method uh, so that we're not just uh, floundering, sitting, uh, and realizing that there are techniques that are useful uh, in helping to channel our, channel our practice, um, but not to ever forget that what we're looking for is a transformation in the heart, the citta. And to keep referring to that and to keep checking in, uh, tuning in to that level of our experience uh, as we develop what we call our practice. So this conversation uh, needs to be an ongoing one uh, that we have. I was thinking of this also in relation to a topic that's been rumbling around in my my mind for a little while. Um, that uh, about the parami of aditana determination. And there's a number of ways that we can reflect on uh, that parami, that developing that uh, quality of determination of aditana. And classically, uh, oftentimes, uh, the ways that that's referred to and talked about in our tradition is along the lines of looking at what obstructions or defilements are present 
in our lives, in our experience, and bringing them to the fore uh, to, to address them uh, and sometimes establishing what we would call an aditana or determination for a period of time uh, to bring them, uh, yeah, to bring them up to uh, a higher awareness, uh, a level of, you know, bringing them up into our consciousness more clearly uh, to, to acknowledge them and work with them uh, and see if there's ways to help ameliorate these obstructions. So we may choose for a period of time to, uh, say, uh, work on our, uh, if we have a strong desire for, f- for food or uh, some particular kinds of food or um, how much we eat, maybe we overdo it uh, in certain areas. So uh, sometimes to address those and to uh, bring them to conscious level of, of, uh, of dealing with them, we'll de- make a determination, make an aditana to restrain from a particular food or uh, something along the lines of, of the, the food experience for a period of time. Uh, to see what the effects are. Or we might make a determination um, to uh, sleep less. Uh, maybe we find ourselves overindulging in sleep or taking too long a nap in the afternoon to in some way curtail that, uh, get up earlier or on the days that we don't have morning puja to still get up at the same time uh, that we would to make it to morning puja and continue our practice as we would in that situation. So making a determination again for a period of time and seeing what the effects are. So that's one form of aditana. Um, it's sort of a, a method-based, it's a practice-based aditana, uh, kind of a one that we do for a short period of time or maybe a little bit longer. Another form would be a certain kind of practice, taking up certain practices, sitting for uh, certain periods of time. Um, uh, Like in the Tibetan tradition, they also have other practices that um, they do of like 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 Vajrasattva um, mantras uh, as part of the the initial training uh, in that tradition. Um, so making a determination uh, along those lines, following through with it, uh, can be a useful way for people to channel energy, uh, to direct themselves, uh, to set some boundaries uh, uh, in a very uh, concrete, concrete way. Um, incidentally, uh, whenever I think about the 100,000 prostrations, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, I'm reminded of uh, an Ajahn Suchito comment about uh, the Theravada practice or the Theravada equivalent, since we have a strong practice of following the Vinaya very strictly um, and setting up those uh, precepts is, our, is one of our boundaries, our limitations, that he calls that practice in the Theravada tradition the 100,000 frustrations that we experience. I always like that turn of phrase. But uh, so there are some kinds of activities like that that we can call an aditana. And um, 
And there's also, I think, uh, a more long-term kind of aditana um, that uh, particularly speaks more to, to, to my uh, heart. Um, and you see that in long-term determinations for practice or for how we live our life, uh, the qualities we want to develop uh, over a long period of time. I think of Ajahn Chah's Aditana, in a sense, to uh, when he, uh, in his early days, or in his determination uh, to ordain, uh, because he wanted to use this lifetime uh, to devote himself to uh, practice completely for this entire lifetime, uh, that no matter what circumstances he found himself in, he said, just for this lifetime, I will do what I can to realize the ending of suffering. And this was a, an overall long-term aditana uh, for the rest of his life. Or the Buddha's aditana, uh, at least as the story goes anyway, um, to, as he was developing uh, his practice and his explorations in his years before he was enlightened, then uh, coming to uh, the final stretch, essentially, um, of making that determination to sit under the Bodhi tree and not move until, until he had attained uh, his goal of complete enlightenment. These are incredibly inspiring long-term determinations. And sometimes, you know, we can get kind of so inspired by them that we make those uh, very, very strong determinations ourselves. And, and I was inspired by Ajahn Chah's very much so. Um, of course, I was inspired by the Buddhas too, but I think I um, realized that I didn't have quite the parami, don't have quite the parami to sit until I become fully enlightened. I, I don't think that's uh, a wise one for, for myself, or for probably most of us to uh, take up, uh, given the, uh, where we are in, with our practice. So you have to know what's uh, wise, what's doable, what's, um, what's reasonable um, in terms of uh, developing these aditanas for the long term. And, one of mine, or kind of the aditana I'm working with these days, is, is just developing that, again, that long-term sense of in it, in it for the, the long haul, and um, doing what I can, uh, in whatever way I can, to just bring a sense of presence uh, and awareness in every posture. We've been talking about that a little bit in the past readings, the past few days of developing the practice, developing a sense of mindfulness and composure, um, sati and samadhi, in every posture, uh, to make it as continuous as one can, to just move through the world with that sense of presence and awareness, uh, and to uh, be very attentive to 
the defiled mind moments, the obstructions when they arise and to release them um, as quickly as possible. Uh, and just to keep doing that, to keep doing that until I don't have to. So that's uh, a long-term kind of aditana, a long-term kind of determination. And in a way to me that's the kind of looking at the method or the, the practice talking in conversation with the heart, looking to see what it is that we pick up to do maybe in the short term and never forgetting um, the effects that it has in the heart and which is our, our long-term orientation. You know, is what we're doing, is the method or the practice that we're engaged with moving towards the goal that we're seeking? Talking, talking with the heart. A number of the readings that we've been listening to and engaging with uh, the past bit of time on the seven factors of enlightenment have dealt with the path factors of uh, sati and uh, samadhi, mindfulness being the first of the seven factors, samadhi being the seventh, uh, the last of the seven factors, sati and samadhi, the samasati, samasamadhi, the seventh and eight factors of the eightfold path as well. And I can sort of see this, the need, to have this same conversation uh, between the practice uh, and the heart uh, in relation to these developing these factors of awakening, particularly these two, in that sometimes the, the practice of um, sati, uh, samadhi, can become very method-oriented uh, in the ways that they're presented in, in, a, in the teachings uh, that we find happening uh, in the current age, the current day, in retreat centers, um, uh, even in some monastic um, forms of the teaching, tend to be quite uh, focused on, uh, on method, uh, how to develop sati, how to develop samadhi, uh, objects of meditation, um, talking about the differences, say, uh, in uh, the approaches with the uh, commentarial version of the development of, of samadhi jhana versus what um, is taught more in our uh, lineage from our teachers and seems to be consistent with what's happening in the, in the canon itself. Um, and so it's a discussion of, of uh, method uh, versus uh, experience, true heart, and, and making sure that what we're doing is, is leading to the goal, uh, that sense of uh, peace and freedom. And that sati and samadhi, you know, if they're, out of, if they're left uh, out of the context of the whole path uh, and the foundations uh, of the path to, to realizing the end of suffering, then they just become techniques, um, you know, without foundations in, in sila, uh, virtue, uh, and particularly, uh, as Long Paul was talking about uh, the other night as well, uh, in right view, 
uh, where is this taking us? What's the whole purpose? Um, looking at the aspiration towards uh, freedom from suffering in the heart. Uh, if, if, if the practices of, quote unquote, practices of samadhi and uh, sati, sati samadhi, um, are taken out of that context, then they just become methods. Uh, and sometimes it's even kind of taught like that. Um, kind of taking, you know, taking it out of the realm of actually the, whole, the full Buddhist path. So, you know, what you get is um, kind of a, a technique, say for, for sati, a technique of um, developing a focused attention. Um, and that's all it is. You know, it's like, I think I was listening to a talk from Ajahn Suchito and he says, yeah, it's like, like it, can, it can be when it's taken out of its context without those foundations. A, a technique for developing focused attention that you get from an app uh, or from a book in the old style. Um, or that samadhi just becomes an, a way of um, developing uh, a kind of an accelerated overcharged form of attention, just really intensifying uh, that experience of uh, focusing attention. It just becomes a technique when it's taken out of context or uh, developed as a meditation, a contemplation of a, a very narrow object that has a certain effect, um, but uh, it just becomes something that we pick up as a technique, as a method, and measure ourselves against. Uh, and so it's important to have these uh, foundational factors and, and the other parts of the, uh, of the Noble Eightfold Path that uh, work and revolve around each other. Uh, they can't be taken out of context if we want to develop a, a true freedom of heart. And we have to constantly evaluate and see and have that, again, that conversation uh, with the heart. What's, what's the effect here? Uh, what's, what's actually happening? What, is it leading to uh, peace, freedom? Or is it just a, a technique? I think there was a talk um, from quite a long time ago that uh, Ajahn Amaro gave, and it was about sila. And, uh, I think the title of the talk, because one of the phrases that he brought up was uh, like, life without sila uh, is, is like a car without brakes. So pointing to the uh, importance of watching the heart or watching the mind uh, in the presence of uh, virtue and seeing the effects of that, uh, just that in itself. Um, that's not a technique, that's a, that's a, uh, a way of living that we adopt uh, that has a strong effect on the heart. So having that conversation, what's the effect of these activities? What's the effect of living a life of non-harming, living a life of honesty, living uh, a life of... Um, consideration for other beings, um, uh, of uh, respecting, uh, respecting others. Uh, what's, the effect, what's the effect of that? Or the effect of generosity, you know, the effect of giving. Can we really truly 
experience uh, a freedom of the heart uh, without uh, being able to offer generously um, of our time, of our, uh, of our lives to, uh, to assist, to help other people. Uh, and seeing, reviewing, considering the effects that that has. When we look back at that, when we pick up that contemplation of sila, that contemplation of chaga, nusati, um, what happens in the heart? What's the experience? Usually when I do that, it's a, it's a natural opening, gladdening, settling, uh, uplifting. Uh, in the heart. Right view, uh, just knowing the context of um, having that foundation uh, uh, so that we have a reference point. What's the purpose of this all? The fact that we can make a difference uh, by applying ourselves, by applying our attention and our energy in fruitful ways uh, and that it can lead to the understanding of, of, of dukkha and the transcendence of dukkha. Without those uh, foundations, then, you know, sati, samadhi just become perfunctory uh, and can actually lead to um, some unhealthy kinds of situations, like Ajahn Jeff's famous saying that uh, I love to remember um, that uh, if you develop uh, if you develop samadhi uh, or concentration uh, in a mind that with a mind that is filled with greed, hatred and delusion what you get is concentrated greed, hatred and delusion so to, to be aware of the, the context within which we're developing these practices uh, So that's making sure that the practice is in tune with, with the heart. <laughs> so the focus uh, can turn from being a method into uh, looking at our experience with our day-to-day life, our day-to-day practice, and seeing what it is that brings about that settling, that gladdening, that setting up of of, uh, the heart, uh, the citta, the mind, that allows it to settle and move into um, ease, uh, to move into a sense of uh, stillness, uh, relinquishment, uh, and peace, uh, and setting that up uh, and uh, moving with that, um, rather than necessarily starting with a method uh, to apply, but uh, just on its own, uh, without referring back to the actual experience. And back to the uh, thinking again about the, the Buddha's determination uh, to not move until uh, he reached uh, the goal. 
uh, and then the, the night of his enlightenment. Uh, the, he wasn't sitting down and practicing a technique uh, that night. He sat down and um, because of you know the uh, strength of his mind uh, over the years of, of searching and reflecting, practicing, um, the first night, the first watch of the night was spent reviewing the innumerable, the unfathomable number of lifetimes he had had, uh, you know, in various forms of rebirth, and the suffering uh, that he experienced uh, since essentially, in, you know, an indeterminable amount of time, since beginningless time, in a sense. And it was a review um, of, of that constant, constant uh, uh, rebirth, suffering, uh, and the relentlessness of that, uh, that was the contemplation of his uh, first watch. And the second watch being uh, kind of applying that same uh, reflection on the arising and passing away of all beings according to their kama and the relentlessness of that, uh, the pain, the suffering, the difficulty um, of that uh, unending process. Uh, and that these are, the, those first two watches, these were, it wasn't him sitting down and you know watching his breath necessarily. He was really actively looking into his heart, looking at the effect of um, of living uh, in ignorance uh, and living in pain and in dukkha over and over again, just examining this on a very experienceable, experienced uh, level. Experienceable. And then the third watch of the night, uh, that determination um, to understand this suffering, understand the cause of it, understand the uh, path leading away from, away from it, out of it, and realizing uh, the end of suffering by seeing um, the asavas, uh, the, the outflows, the taints of, of sensuality, of, of becoming, of ignorance, uh, and how they supported this continuous engagement in samsara and how the heart just decided it had had enough and started to release, to let go of these outflows, uh, to let go of the interest in sensuality, to let go of the interest in being, becoming, uh, and to uh, see clearly uh, fully uh, with uh, the knowing mind, the knowing heart, how this came to arise and how it comes to pass. And having this disenchantment, this, this passion, this stilling of all the formations, the, the relinquishment of any of the uh, ways that we identify uh, with being and allowing 
this cessation to to uh, settle, to happen, and non-arising and, and freedom uh, and the realization of, of Nibbana. This was his night of enlightenment. It wasn't a technique. It was a direct communication with an understanding of the heart and how it gets entangled and how to let it go. I was also listening to a talk the other night, um, another Ajahn Suchito talk um, from a couple of months ago, and part of it towards the end was uh, him relating a visit he had with his brother, who's in a care facility in England. And his brother has Parkinson's disease as well as Alzheimer's, kind of a sometimes that combination comes up and it's pretty intense double whammy. Um, and he's at the stage now where uh, he is essentially uh, unable to communicate, uh, pretty much doesn't respond, I guess is still sitting up, uh, obviously taking in nourishment, but um, just uh, you know, very uh, impaired cognitively and physically from both of those diseases. And he went to visit him, uh, this was back in January, and sat down uh, and uh, just, you know, knew it wasn't going to be real easy, but uh, uh, started to communicate, um, talk a little bit, I'm not sure what he said. Uh, he didn't mention that in the in the talk he was giving, but uh, wasn't getting any response. Uh, just kind of blankness, uh, no response. Uh, whether it was getting in and just not able to be uh, responded to, or whether it wasn't getting in and not being able to be responded to, there just wasn't any kind of engagement or activity of conversation or acknowledgement even. Um, of uh, the, the little bit that Ajahn Suchito was trying to communicate verbally with him. So he let that go, you know, realizing that it's not, it's not the uh, way to communicate. And um, instead he picked up his hand and started massaging it, picked up his brother's hand and, and started massaging it and did that for a little while and massaged his legs. Just being there physically, and then after a little while, um, he started, I, well, maybe it, was, uh, maybe it was sometime during that, maybe I think he said after about 10 minutes or so, his brother um, all of a sudden uh, started to try and verbally communicate. And what he said didn't make any sense, but it was a clear coming to uh, of you know, consciousness, presence, awareness of that there was something going on. There was somebody else present, uh, just through this tactile gentleness. And then after a little while, I think, uh, as he told it, uh, he started chanting, softly chanting uh, some verses on metta, uh, loving kindness. And after some time, um, maybe it was even, I think he said maybe even an hour or so, of just being there, uh, not trying to verbally communicate, but just softly chanting, massaging. His brother 
lifted one of his own hands and took it over to Ajahn Suchito's hand, which was resting on his other hand, and put it with it, you know, joined all of the hands together in a gesture of communication and, and presence, responding to a whole different level of conversation, uh, conversation at the level of the heart. Uh, it didn't have anything to do with verbal communication or intellect or ideas, concepts, uh, all the things that we usually, all the ways that we usually try and communicate. Uh, it was a direct communication, heart to heart, uh, that was what made the impact. So, just another example in my mind of, of uh, what it is that we're all looking to do you know, this is where the, the meaningful, meaningful communication happens. Uh, bringing experience um, to the fore and letting go of the ideas, the concepts, the methods, the practice. And tuning into where freedom from suffering actually happens. This is, what, this is what we all want to experience, I think. And it takes that kind of using, uh, you know, maybe some sort of uh, gentle methods to steer ourselves in the right direction, but maybe not investing so much uh, belief in it, not turning in our methods into just sila bhata paramasa, you know, just uh, techniques, uh, practices and precepts, or rites and rituals, but using whatever techniques we do use in conjunction with clearly tuning into looking at what's happening in the heart, steering it in a direction that leads to kindness and compassion, stillness, yeah, and, and, and that serves uh, as the basis for uh, letting go, relinquishment. So that's just some thoughts that I had about Lung Pa's comments of conversation between, we need to have these conversations between practice and the heart. To, uh, to keep the practice real and pointed in the direction that uh, leads to that settling and freedom. So thank you, Lung Pa, for starting that conversation. <laughs> and I'll leave it there for tonight. <laughs>